0: Well, you should have a set of notes. If you haven't been with us, we're walking through the seven churches of Revelation. And as I said, we're unlocking all secrets, which is just dynamite. Uh, And these seven letters, which are delivered by Christ to the churches in what's Asia Minor, modern Turkey. Uh, Smyrna, by the way, is Izmir, where uh, Andrew Brunson and his wife served for 25 years. There's a set structure with these letters. That should not surprise us. There's a set structure in our letters even today, right? I mentioned this when Johnny writes from church camp and says, "Dear Mom and Dad, I got stung by a bee." You know, there's there's this there's this, this standard protocol, right? Send me more money for the snack shop. Love, Johnny. There there's that set structure. And that's the case here with all of these. There's an opening address, a description of Christ, the assessment, a uh, command. There is some uniqueness with the letters, and if you've just joined us, we've looked already at four of these letters, so just let me highlight these. Uh, The letter to Ephesus is going to resemble much of the letter we're going to see today to Smyrna, uh, to Sardis, excuse me. Uh, They're commended, and there is a condemnation that's given some things they need to work on. Smyrna, along with Philadelphia, which we'll look at next week, these two churches never received a condemnation. Uh, they're doing very well. Laodicea, which will be the last letter we look at, uh, there is no commendation. Uh, it's all condemnation. That church has really got a problem. And then you, got, uh, and you can see Pergamum and Thyatira. So these are the four letters that we've looked at, and now we're in Revelation chapter 3. So if you would, please turn there, and let's look at this text. It says, To the angel of the church at Sardis write the following. So we have this messenger of the Lord who is assigned to a particular church. It says, this is the solemn announcement. Remember, this is from the Lord. This should be a red letter, right? This is a solemn pronouncement of the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. We'll talk about that in a minute. It says, I know your deeds. Now, in all of the other letters, when it says, I know, we're going to expect something positive. I know you've been... Faithful in your service. I know that you've been generous to the saints, whatever the case may be. That is not the situation with Sardis. So I could just see them sitting on the edge of the seat thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Here it comes. And then he hits them over with a two by four. That you have a reputation that you are alive or that you are, um, we are the lively bunch, but in reality, you are dead. Wake up then and strengthen what remains, what was about to die, because I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Uh, Ouch, right? Ouch. And he says, therefore, remember what you've received and heard, obey it and repent. If you do not wake up, that's the second time, I will come like a thief and you will not know that hour I will come against you. But you have a few, and only a few, individuals in Sardis who have not stained their clothes, and they will walk with me dressed in white because they are worthy. The one who conquers will be dressed like them in white, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will declare his name before my Father, before his angels. The one who has an ear had better hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's look at this letter, and in the... Opening part, here is an overview of the letter. I'm not going to go and read this in detail. You can look at this later. But again, these these letters weren't written in a vacuum. They're written to a a group of people. Uh, And Sardis was a very prestigious city in earlier days. It was the capital of Lydia in fact, the first coins ever minted by any location was at Sardis, the gold coins. The Midas touch, by the way. The Midas is from, the, the story comes from Sardis. And so a very, very affluent city. In fact, in AD 17, there was a massive earthquake that hits Asia Minor. This city is destroyed. And Rome, in fact, the emperor Tiberius even meant a coin that shows that he is helping all these cities Uh, rebuild. But Sardis said, no, thank you. We got this taken care of. We don't need any financial assistance. So very affluent. They're known for their wool industry. And you can see the location to where it is in the seven churches. Um, One thing to mention as well in that intro background, just so you know, Unlike some of the cities that we have studied, Sardis is known for its Jewish population. In fact, if I went back, I could show you. Uh, that is the synagogue. It is the largest synagogue outside of Israel in the first century. It could accommodate a thousand worshipers. So what that tells us, very, uh, very Jewish. And, and I find that intriguing in light of some of the rhetoric that's absent here versus what we saw at Pergamum, for instance. Well, let's look at the layout of the book. But as we do, is there any questions on the background, the cultural background? We're going to highlight something that's very unique in the history of this city in light of the text in a minute. Nope. Okay. Well, then let's go and look at the opening. As we see here, it says, again, you have this description of Jesus, which is the beginning of all of the seven letters. And here we're told there are seven spirits of God. You go, what in the world is that? And I mentioned there in your notes, it's probably a reference to the Holy Spirit found in Zechariah, a sign of completion that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, Christ, the Father are all involved in this letter and the reference to the seven stars, which we saw earlier in the letter to the church at Ephesus. In other words, this is the, I mentioned this in your notes there, the believers of Sardis need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God and their dependence upon him. That's very important. They have forgotten that, which we're going to see. And Christ is stating, "Uh uh-uh, I'm sovereign. I'm seeing all things. I'm working in your midst. I wonder if church in America, sometimes I wonder, yeah, yeah. What would happen if we, we really recognize Christ is in our midst, Christ is moving among us, and, and, and that could be for good or for bad, but he's, he's cognizant of what's happening. It's like what my grandmother said, be careful, because, you know, the Lord's watching you. He's, he's there, right? And that's true. And so for the church, there's this reminder, I am the sovereign one, I am the one who's there, and that's further seen in his assessment of the church. Notice what it states, I know your deeds, And again, we talked about this. This is very interesting. And they claim, what do they claim? They claim to be alive. They claim to be vibrant. We are the church on the cutting edge. We got it together, right? They've been writing books on how to plant churches. (laughs) They, they, They have it down pat, so they claim. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not alive. You're dead. Now, What's the implications here for the church? This group of believers in light of this, that they claim to be alive but are dead. What does that tell us about this group of believers? They're going through the motions? Yeah. What else does it tell us? Okay, going through the motions. Yeah, there's a... Um, a lack of (laughs) self-awareness yeah not truthful what else if I'm claiming I'm alive and I got it together what does it say I'm a bit arrogant I think arrogance is also seen here Just wrote a book on uh, on humility. I can't wait till you have it, right? It's kind of that idea. I mean, they think they got it together. They think the the cats meow in churches, uh, and and yet there's this total lack of self awareness. said, I'm a, I've been in your midst. I've watched. You're not alive. You're dead. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, they're shallow in their pursuits. It's it's hollow. We'll get to that in a minute, but yes, their names are not in the book of life, which creates a whole host of interpretive questions we're going to get to in a minute. So yeah, this is, uh, thank you for bringing that up, Dave. Yes, uh, that is a difficult part in this letter, isn't it? It was a good point. Well, let's let's back up though. I want to first look at here, the solution to the church is found in verse two and in verse three, where he says, wake up. In fact, in this section, uh, Christ is going to say to this dead church, um, we'll move along here. There are five commands that he's going to give. I want you to watch these. There's five commands, and then there's two warnings. And they're laid there on page two of your notes. The first of these is to wake up. <clears throat> it's repeated twice. And if you knew Sardis's history, you'll know that twice before the first century, the city was unexpectedly attacked at night. The Persians did it. Uh, they climbed the steep cliffs on the side uh, and moved over the wall and, and used that to enter and pregnate the city and destroy it. And so it's interesting, this idea, none of this is just by coincidence. These are things these people can relate to. This idea of waking up, they would be full aware of what the implications are for them as a church. One scholar writes, The danger of the believers reducing the full commandment to God through Christ and of allowing themselves to be seized of things of lesser value. The concern is they're distracted by what's important. They've they've grown dull to the spiritual things. And why not? Because they think they got it together. Things are fine. And that is a danger, isn't it? It's a danger in anything. Um it's danger if you're playing sports. It's a danger if you're, you're playing a musical instrument. Think you got it together and you get lax and you're in deep caca before you know it, right? That's the idea. He says, strengthen. This is the second command. What remains? So there is an element that's still there. And he says, you need to resuscitate it. Uh, it's uh, interesting. He's saying it's it's not complete. You you need to see it done. And Sardis was known. Uh, they had a humongous temple to Artemis. The columns. It, it takes a couple men holding hands to get around it. I've been there. They're they're enormous. And here's the kicker. That temple was never completed in Sardis history. And yet it's it's it was front and center. And it never finished that project. And and he's saying, don't be. I I, th- I could just hear him, Christ saying, don't be like the temple. Finish the job, be complete, strengthen what remains. And then he says, the third command is to remember. Again, this is similar to the instructions in Ephesus, which tells us these churches have been well taught. The foundation was established by Paul and John and others who served in this region. He says, you know the stuff, and you need to be built upon it. In fact, it's not just remember, but he says you need to obey. Did you catch that? He says, Take actions need to accompany your words. And then finally, the the command is to repent. Hemer in his work on the, seven, the letter to the seven churches write, a call to repentance is included in all the letters except those in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Only, however, at Ephesus and Sardis is it a consequence upon a call to remember. And that's the case. You need to remember this and thus repent. Did you notice, in the, the, notice what he says in verse 3? Remember what you received, heard it, and obey it, and repent. I would have expected repent first, then obey. Why? Why did he reverse them? I mean, think about it. If you writing this out, I would have thought, you repent, then you obey. You do. Why did he reverse it? Yeah, Kyle. Okay. That's an idea. That we are talking about actions that that then but the actions usually in scripture indicate there's been a change. You know, um, why why did he reverse it? Because the way that they should act, so it's kind of a reminder rather than Okay, a reminder is an idea. Good. Repentance is repentance is obedience that's an interesting one i've not heard that i like that repentance is obedience most scholars are going to argue it's uh it is a literary construction which is the last is first for emphasis in other words the what christ is trying to stress to the church is that they need to obey repentance yes but our focus is going to be on the obeying that then follows it some of the elements you've all highlighted could still be teased out and, and brought into that but anyway interesting Ah, what we do with children right we teach them to obey before they can even understand oh uh, wow, that's interesting yep with children we want them to obey yes just change mind do a 180 a 180 and and that's what he needs for this church uh, repentance again is seen in, in in almost all of the letters There's a paragraph there close to the bottom with letter C. It says, not only is there a warning concerning the impending death. So we have these five commands, but we also have these two warnings. And the first is, there is a remnant that's about to die. I don't know about you, but when Andrew Brunson was speaking, all I could think of was was these seven letters. And the call to persevere in the midst of persecution. the, The call to remain faithful. And... You see that here in this letter. that There are a few, verse 4, who have not stained their clothes. He's saying you need to stand strong in the midst of this. Um, The idea that you are worthy, which it reminds me of uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.12, to be worthy of your confession. You've made a profession. You you need to walk worthy of that. Then I think of Hebrews. Those who did do that, Hebrews 11 says they were not worthy or this world was not worthy of them because they reflected Christ. And by the way, this is free. It wasn't in my notes, but they reflect Christ because see, it says you'll be dressed in white. And then the one who conquers, he too will be dressed in white. He'll look like Christ who you've longed to to be and to serve. So there it is. A remnant is about to die and the Lord is going to come Suddenly. Eschatology, once again, is driving our ethics. If we really believe Christ is going to return, if we really believe there is something beyond this grave, then we're going to act and do stuff differently, aren't we? Their spiritual eyes, sadly, as we look at this, have developed cataracts. The things are out of focus and, and, and what they think aren't that major or, or miss is very significant and the cataracts have been formed by the things of the world they've been tainted and that's what the implication is that a few of you have not stained your clothes, the implication is what just the opposite, many have been stained and the idea here is that they are impure that they've picked up the filth of that in which they, the world in which they live. And that leads us to the conclusion then. As we look at this, this unstained clothing, it's it's an idea of defilement. We see that in several locations. You can see that in your notes. It's interesting as well. Uh, in Asia Minor, in the first century, there are uh, writings that talk about the soiled clothing of the impure worshipers. Now, it's an occultic setting. It's not related to the New Testament or uh, to Scripture, to the following of Christ. But you see these secular writings that talk about the impure worshipers or those who have soiled clothes. And so the idea here is that we are to walk in accordance and fellowship with the Lord. And so the unstained clothing... Um, not to be defiled, it's a sign of qualification for worship. Where do we get this idea of white garments? The city was known for its wool industry, and some would tie it there. There's a whole laundry list, no pun intended, uh, there for you. You can see on page three, I'm not going to read through those. We really don't know. Uh, it's, It's hard to say. Nonetheless, it's there for you. The most difficult part of this letter is verse 5, isn't it? Yeah, I can understand the call to walk in purity, etc., but what in the world do you do with verse 5? It says, the one who conquers will be dressed like them in white clothing, and I will erase his name from the book of life, or excuse me, I will never uh, missing that word's important, but will declare His name before my Father and before his angels. So what in the world do we have going on here? The first is the book of life. What is the book of life? Well, thankfully, we have many references to this throughout Scripture and even outside of Scripture. The Old Testament, which is cited there in your notes, refers to the names of the righteous that are included in the book. And so this is the, the frozen chosen. These are the ones who have fellowship with God. These are the ones that are in. And the Old Testament, I've given you several references. Also, intertestament Jewish literature, that's writings from Jews in between the Old and the New Testament, also talks about the book of life. And it's reserved for the righteous. It's reserved for God's people and the New Testament. And interestingly enough, it's even in a secular world of the first century. and In the Greco-Roman world, uh, cities would have the register of names in a book. And if your name was in that book, you were considered privileged. You were honored. This was your city, kind of an idea. And so that's all spelled out here. But clearly, I think even in the New Testament, we see this is a list of those who are considered righteous. But the question is, isn't it, How in the world do you get your name erased from the book? What do you do with that? right, now I'm going to give you several interpretations. Uh, I'm not going to go into great length, but we'll lay these out for us, for you. The first of these is a loss of salvation. That's the easiest read. When I immediately see this, it's boom. Uh, They're taken out of the book of life, right? I will never erase implies there are those that will be erased, And that's what the argument is. In other words, you'll not lose your salvation if you are faithful. How do we handle this in light of the New Testament teachings? Because we need to take the whole canon. Let me give you three things down at the bottom of page three. Romans 8. In fact, we need to look at these texts just briefly. Romans 8. Just bear with me. We're going to do a sword drill. Someone read Romans 8.30. Someone read Ephesians 4.30. And I need someone to read Hebrews 7, verse 25. Those three references are at the bottom of the page, I believe. My notes are just a little off from yours. Uh, They're in the middle of the page, so sorry. My notes are a little off. I added a bunch of stuff. So the middle of the page, the references, Romans 8, 30, Ephesians 4, 30, and Hebrews 7. Who has Romans 8, 30? Can you read it for us, please? Yeah. So those he's predestined, those he's called before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1, he will see glorified. Uh, And he is the subject. We are the object there, by the way. Uh, Who has, so that's the father. Who has Ephesians 4? Can you read it for us loud and clear? Okay, so now you have the role of the Holy Spirit who has sealed the believers, those who made a genuine profession in Christ, and the other is Hebrews 7. Uh, yes, Kyle. That is why he always yeah, and that's a reference to Christ. And so what do we see here? We see the role of the, the Trinity the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Christ, all involved to ensure one's security. And I would argue God's reputation is at stake as well as God's grace. And so, uh, the loss of salvation to me does not fit with the rest of New Testament teaching. So, we got to go to a second interpretation about this erasing the names. This idea is that all the names are contained at the beginning of time and... When there is no profession, you're immediately just erased out of the book, which is an interesting interpretation. But what does Ephesians 1 state? Before the foundation of the world, God had called us. So it seems strange that that doesn't seem to fit here, uh, this idea that, no, the book's already been ordained, so to speak. This is a third view, and that is all professing names. Anyone who gives lip service to Jesus and says, Yeah, I believe, is put in the book. But only those who have a genuine salvation that the profession is true will be kept. Those who walk away, fall into apostasy, they're removed. Interesting view, a problem with it, I think, is, and I. Highlight there is that it fails to explain why someone with a false profession would even be included in the book. That doesn't fit with the use of the book of life in the Old Testament, Inter Testament period, and I would argue the New Testament. So we're left with the only other option, which I think is the most viable, and that is, I will never erase his name, is not a threat, but a promise. You say, well, that seems strange. Look at your notes. This is a literary device. It's used throughout Scripture in which the negative is stated in order to stress the positive. One commentator writes, the verse is not a threat. It's a promise made to those who have been faithful in Sardis. That's the, the view I land on. I'm not going to go to a firing squad over it, but I, it's the view I hold to. Uh, and why? W- why then say this? And I've given you three reasons in your notes. The first of these, it's a command of, of great comfort, isn't it? A promise. Uh, no one's going to remove you. You make that profession. You know, I was thinking of that again going back to Andrew Brunson. Turkish government could have executed him. They can, they can do whatever they want to. They can torture him to death. <clears throat> but they can't take his name from the book of life. Christ is the one who keeps that. Secondly, it's never is a uh, the reason this is important I think is that it's never is a warning delivered to the overcomer in any of the seven letters. So this idea that something could happen negative doesn't fit with the other promises in the other six letters. And finally, the unbelievers mentioned in the book of Revelation are never associated positively with the book of life. Instead, they're seen with the book of judgment. So to me, this is the best fit. And so what is the Lord stating? He says, you need to hang in there. You're mine. Even in the midst of all that's horrible, I'm here. And he says in the text, notice what he says, I will declare your name Before my father. And you you see there in your notes, it refers back, I think, to Matthew 10. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my father in heaven. Hmm. And so this church that thinks they got it all together have got some serious problems. Uh, They need some outside assessment, and that's what Christ is doing for them. I remember working on, we were being re-accredited at a university that I worked at, and that process is, oh, it's awful. Uh, you've got to put these teams together, and you've got to assess and assess and assess, but then they come in and say, okay, let us help you out. <laughs> so these outside agency comes in, and sometimes you're right on target, other times they, they show you things that you've missed. There's value in it, there's no doubt, it's painful, And that's what Christ is doing. I thought it would be very helpful if Christ could do that today, wouldn't it? He just walked to each church and said, by the way, here's an evaluation of your church. I did an assessment. (laughs) Here's where I'm going to commend you. Here's what you need to work on. Um, And that, thus is our role to make sure that we have a proper assessment of who we are. Well, let me give you three things to walk away with. Hang on your beak today. The first of all, again, is that we need a healthy view of sin I think part of this is just, it's downplaying a lot of of what's happening. They've, They've grown accustomed to wearing the white garment through the streets and picking up the dirt. And most believers that fall into sin, it's usually compartmentalized and they assume they got it all together. Here's the problem. Sin taints everything it comes in contact with, everything. You cannot compartmentalize it. Eventually, that, it's like putting a hot coal in a bag and thinking you are in your purse. Well, you don't wear a purse. But if you have a purse, put a hot coal in it. You think, I'm okay. The next thing you know, it's in flames. It's burned through. And, and that's the idea with sin. Hebrews 10. Let's look at this text. It's alarming. Hebrews 10. If you're uh, growing cold in your faith, read the book of Hebrews. That'll put a lightning rod through your britches. Uh, Hebrews 10 verse 26 for then he would have to suffer again and again he's talking about this idea of going of sinning continually sinning since the foundation of the world but now he's appeared once for all the consummation of the ages to put away sin by his sacrifice and just as people are appointed to die once and then to face judgment so also Christ was suffered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly await him, he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation. If Christ has gone to such great lengths for sin, having to die on a cross, why would you want to play with it? Why would you want to kick it around in the backyard? Bury the sucker. Shoot it and bury it in the backyard, right? That's the idea. And for this church, they've been playing with fire. And he said, careful. Also, I think another thing that we can walk away with at the, from the church of Sardis is in light of the urgency of the hour, we need to be encouraging one another. And that's what I love about you guys. Uh, I, I had a couple emails already from folks saying, Hey, did you hear about so and so, Wolfgang? I, I had a couple people write and say, Do you know he had COVID? Been praying for him. Keep it up. Keep it up. And we've got, I think there's 26 churches in this room that are represented. And I, I love it. Uh, encourage one another. Go across the Not only the pew, but the streets to other churches, encouraging the saints to press on. As as what Christ told the church at Sardis, what did he say? Few individuals who have not stained their clothes will, will be walking with me dressed in white. And then finally, one more thing for us today as we close the Lord will not abandon his people. If you didn't get anything else from Andrew Brunson, I mean, that, that came screaming through while he was with us. The Lord doesn't abandon. Oh, Andrew was very vulnerable with us saying it. There was times he really questioned it, especially in the first year. And perhaps while you've not been imprisoned, you could relate to what Andrew stated. I had one individual literally in tears after church saying he voiced what I have been afraid to say. Well, Hebrews 13 says the same thing. Where, Lord, are you in the midst of this? How long? Have you forgotten me? I mean, it's it's borderline blasphemous. And yet, in the process of running to the Lord rather than from Him, there's an understanding, no, you're in charge. You're there. I can trust you. Turn to 2 Timothy. Let me close with this text this morning. 2 Timothy 4. I love this little letter. It's... Uh, Paul's last epistle in the New Testament. And he says in verse 3 of 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 For there will be a time when people will not tolerate sound teaching. Instead, following their own desires, they will accumulate teachers for themselves because they have an insatiable curiosity to hear new things. I always told my students if you're espousing something that no one has said in church history, you better take a long hard look. <laughs> Careful. Right? For there will be time when people will not tolerate this and they will turn verse 4 away from hearing the truth. But on the other hand, they will turn aside to myths. You, however, be self-controlled in all things, endure hardship, do an evangelist work, fulfill your ministry, for I'm already being poured out like an offering. In other words, he's about ready to die. The time for me to just depart. I've complete, completed well. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. That's the few who haven't had their garment tainted at Sardis. Finally, the crown of righteousness is reserved for me. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me that day, and not only to me, but to all who have set their affections on his appearing. Father, it's, we look across the landscape of our country and our hearts break. We are a sinful people, Talking to Andrew, and he said, You know, the U.S. has has polluted this globe with its pornography, with its emphasis on abortion, and the list goes on. We live among a culture that seeks to exalt self rather than you, who seeks to unravel the created order, elevating. Issues that uh, you never intended. I'm reminded of Romans 1 that you gave them over to their evil desires. And so we live in a world where parades are given for immorality, (laughs) legislation is applauded for its openness and acceptance. And so, Father, in, in navigating these waters, it's so easy to become polluted. Guard our hearts. May we not be like those many at Sardis who embraced much of the culture, but may we be like the few at Sardis who stand strong, that persevere. And Lord, thank you that in the midst of this, you do not abandon us. We are there, and there's a day coming when you will declare our names before the Father. How gracious. How powerful. And we long to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.